Now it is my plan in the will of God in the four weeks that I shall be here to uh, advance somewhat in the book of Nehemiah. Now we won't get through it all, uh, but we'll do a substantial part of the book of Nehemiah. And the book of Nehemiah is set in the context of the return of the Jews from captivity in Babylon. Now earlier, the prophet Jeremiah had not only predicted and prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, but he had also predicted that there would be a return for God would not abandon his own people. Now the return from captivity had begun a number of years previously. The return began in the time of Zerubbabel and Joshua in 538 BC. The temple was completed in 516 And Ezra, the scribe, returned to Jerusalem in 458. And the return of Nehemiah in 444 BC was the final act of rebuilding both the temple and the city in fulfillment of the promise of God. And this long process of restoration and rehabilitation has some important lessons to teach us as the people of God. There are three lessons that we'll have a look at before we actually get into the book of Nehemiah. First of all, God is always faithful to what he has promised. The promise that God gave through Jeremiah must have seemed foolish and wildly optimistic to those who had seen the city and the temple destroyed. They'd seen all the people carried off into exile. And yet, God was faithful. God promised and God fulfilled. And that's a lesson we need to keep with us all the time. God is faithful to what he has promised. And when we read the scriptures, either personally or in family worship, We don't do it just because it's something we ought to do. We do it because it's important for us to remind ourselves of the promises of God and that God will fulfill his promises. But the second thing that we learn is that sometimes the fulfillment of God's promise comes gradually. It was more than a hundred years from the first of the exiles returning until the walls were rebuilt in the time 
of Nehemiah. More than a hundred years, but God was fulfilling his promises little by little. And we need to remind ourselves that God does not always work and carry out his purposes to fit with our human timescale. He works as it pleases him and in accordance with his own plan. The responsibility of the believer is to follow obediently the revealed will of God in each circumstance. So God always fulfills what he promises. Sometimes the fulfillment comes gradually. And the third lesson is that God uses more than one person to carry out his plan. There are many pieces in the jigsaw of God's plan. Just as there are different shapes and sizes in a jigsaw. So in the fulfillment of God's plan and purpose, there are people with differing gifts and abilities. And for the picture to be fulfilled completely, each one must faithfully fulfill his part. So that's by way of introduction. God is always faithful to what he promises. Sometimes the fulfillment comes gradually and God uses more than one person to carry out his plan and purpose. So the first thing that we see now in chapter 1 of Nehemiah is a life-shattering encounter. A life-shattering encounter. The book begins by identifying the author as Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Nehemiah had grown up in exile, and he had risen to a position of authority in the king's household. We'll come back to that. The book is set in its immediate context, for Nehemiah states that the events he took place, that that he describes, took place in in the month of Kislev, which is November or December, in the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes, which would have been 445 BC, as Artaxerxes began his reign in 465. Nehemiah also describes the place where he received the news that changed the whole course of his life. He was serving in the city of Susa, the winter palace of the king of Persia. Incidentally, this was the same place where Esther had lived as queen, if you read in in Esther chapter 1 and verse 2. As often happens in the scripture, it seems that the initial contact that Nehemiah had with the returned exiles was by accident. 
It puts it well in the New American Standard version of the scripture. It says, now it happened. Now it happened. This is just another example and illustration of the work of God who plans all things according to his own will. Now, it may be that the men who came to Susa had gone back to Jerusalem, they'd left family behind, and they came perhaps to visit them. Whatever the reason that took them there, God purposed that they would meet with Nehemiah. And amongst one of the men that came was Nehemiah's brother. Nehemiah's brother, Hanani. Now, almost certainly, Nehemiah had no inkling that his brother was going to visit. There were no phone calls, there were no text messages, there was nothing at all. And there was probably little contact between Susa and Jerusalem. But in the providence of God, God brought Hanani into Susa where he met Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, quite naturally, asked about the welfare of the Jews who had returned to Judah from captivity. Remember, we're talking about a hundred years since the first exiles went back. And the news that Nehemiah received were grievous indeed. When he asks about the welfare, he's informed that the people were in great distress and reproach. The city wall was broken down and the gates were burned with fire. We read that in 2 Kings 25. Now, I don't believe that it was the fact that the walls were broken down and that the gates were burned with fire that caused Nehemiah the distress. It was not the fact of this destruction caused in 586 that caused Nehemiah to weep and to mourn. It was a fact that almost a hundred years after the destruction of the walls and the burning of the gates, they still remained the same. Nothing had been done. And Nehemiah's reaction is a challenge to the church today. The walls of the professing church in our land have been and are being daily destroyed by false doctrine, by complacency, by accommodation with the world, and by failure to reach out into a fallen world. And what do we do? What do we do? We don't need to hear about it, we see it. We see it every day. We hear it every day on the radio. We hear when professing 
pastors of God's people come out with all sorts of abominations. We hear about how those who should feed the flock of God and reach out to the ungodly, how they ally themselves with worldly movements, how they seek to undermine biblical authority. And what do we do? We shake our heads and say, that's terrible. That's awful. But it has no great effect upon us. We become so used to seeing the declension of the church that we no longer take it to heart. We no longer grieved about it. I was recently in my own homeland of Scotland. And when I see the state of the church in Scotland, it moves me to tears. The place of the Covenanters, the place of the Reformers, the place where once upon a time the word of God was preached on every corner street, every street corner. Now the walls are broken down and the gates are burned with fire. And is it any different here? There was a life-shattering encounter. The second thing that we see here is a life-changing experience. And the reaction of Nehemiah to the news that he heard of the state of Jerusalem is extremely instructive for the child of God today. You notice that Nehemiah did not simply moan and complain and criticize. You see, he could have criticized the people in Jerusalem. Why have they done nothing? Why have they been waiting almost a hundred years to do anything? What's wrong with them? The sorry condition of the Lord's people not only moves him to tears, but it also galvanizes him into action. And it's interesting to note the first thing that Nehemiah does. The first thing that he does is to pray. He seeks God's face in prayer. And there are certain features that we should notice in Nehemiah's prayer. The first thing we see is that it is serious and genuine. He continued, it says, for a period of days without even seeking to satisfy his normal physical needs. Fasting and praying day and night. I ask myself the question, and I ask you, when was the last time you spent days and nights praying and fasting for the state of the church? 
It's not a question I ask for you, it's a question I ask for me. When was I so concerned about the state of the church that it, it caused me to pray and to fast for days on end? But the second thing we notice about the prayer of Nehemiah was that it, is ba- it was based on the character of God. Look at what he says. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to the prayer of your servant. He recognizes that God was a covenant God. He recognized God as the almighty and sovereign God who had entered into covenant with his people. And if you are a a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have entered into a particular relationship with God. One that the unbeliever does not have and cannot have. You have a special relationship with God. God is your father. You are his adopted son or daughter. So you have a special relationship with God. And when you come to God in prayer, you can plead that special relationship. You can plead the relationship that God has entered into with you. And he has done that. Remember that God chose his people in eternity. He entered into a particular relationship with you. He cared so much for you that he sent his only son into this world to die for you, to rise again for you, to live in glory for you, making intercession for you. We can claim that special relationship, a God who has entered into covenant with his people. The third thing he did was he confessed his own and his people's sin. Now, that may seem rather strange because Nehemiah didn't come from Jerusalem. Or his parents did, or his, his forefathers did. But Nehemiah, as far as we understand, Nehemiah grew up in exile, in Babylon. So it was, in one sense, it was nothing to do with him if the walls were not repaired. It was not his fault if nobody had repaired the gates. He'd been living in Babylon. But as a part of the people of God, he realized his responsibility and he acknowledges that their sin is his sin. And surely, we should take to heart the sin of those who profess to know Christ, the professing church of Jesus Christ. When we see terrible things going on 
not outside the church, but inside the professing church? Should we as believers not confess that as being our sin as well as our people's sin? For we are part of the church. Oh, we can excuse ourselves by saying, well, it's not our church. It's not the church that we belong to. But it is the church. Unless we are to say, that it is only within the Reformed Presbyterian Church that you find any believers. And I don't think any of us would even hint at that. So he prayed and confessed his own and his people's sin. And the fourth thing about his prayer was that he pleaded the promises that God had made to his people in the past and the way that he had delivered them throughout their their history. Look at verses 8 to 10. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. And when we come to pray to God, surely we should take confidence and we should be able to plead all that God has done for his people in the past, all that God has done for us, how God has delivered us, how God has saved us, how God has kept us through all the vicissitudes of life. Surely, like Nehemiah, our prayer should be serious and genuine. It should be based upon the character of God. We should confess our sin and the sin of those that name the name of Christ. And we should plead the promises of God. And we should plead the goodness of God that we have experienced in the past. So the first thing that Nehemiah does is to seek God's face in prayer. The second thing he does is to make himself available to go to Jerusalem to do something about the situation. Now, although this is not specifically stated in these verses, it is implied. Look at what he says. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Give him success and compassion before planning to go to Jerusalem in the will of God. So he prays for God. Is that Nehemiah began his praying in December, Kislev. But he only made his request to the king in Nisan 
which was April. So from December to April, he prays that God will have compassion, that God will soften the heart of this king. Surely we should do, as Nehemiah did, confess our people's sin, our rebellion, our covenant breaking. Should we not pray for mercy in the terms that Nehemiah did? And should we not be willing to say, as Nehemiah did, here I am, send me. The third and last thing is a life-affirming understanding. A life-affirming understanding. In an almost throwaway line at the end of the first chapter, Nehemiah states, Now I was cupbearer to the king. And this seemingly insignificant statement has a great deal to teach us, not only in the context of the story of Nehemiah, but also for the life of the child of God as he lives in an increasingly godless world. Now, we must never think that the cupbearer was just some lowly servant who served the king uh, at his his dinner table. The name that appears in the Hebrew for the cupbearer was Rabshakeh. And if you read through the Old Testament, you'll find that on occasions the envoy who was sent from a heathen king to another state was a man called Rabshakeh. Now that's not his name. That's his title. His title is a chief prince or cupbearer. So the cupbearer to the king was a high official in the court, an officer of high rank, whose duty it was to look after the king. Now, kings in those times were were liable to be poisoned, and so the wine that the king drank had to be made sure that it was pure. The cupbearer was not just a servant who served the wine. Many Eastern kings did not go in and out amongst the people, but they stayed very much in their palaces. But it was the Rabshaki, it was the official who went out to to declare the king's wishes to the people. So he was a very important official. And he needed to be a man who was reliable. And the Rabshake was often the man who gave counsel to the king. The king listened to him because he trusted him. And so here we have this man who was a Hebrew. He was one of the sons of the exile. And yet here he is, 
in the highest position of authority and influence with a heathen king. And it's quite astonishing to see how God placed his servants in positions of influence during the time of the exile. There was Esther. Who knows if you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were high officials in the land. Daniel. And now we have Nehemiah. And there are four lessons we learn from this. First of all, God is sovereign over the affairs of men and nations. This was a truth that Nehemiah, uh, sorry, that Nebuchadnezzar was brought to understand in Daniel 4 and verse 35. God is sovereign over the affairs of men and nations. Sometimes we think that heathen nations are somehow out of control and they're out of God's sight. We think of the situation in Russia. What can God have to do with that? Well, God is sovereign over all nations, over all rulers, whether that be our own rulers or whether that be Vladimir Putin. God is sovereign. The second thing that we learn is this. Everything that God does, he does for the good of his people. You all know Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. We know that God does all things for the good of his people. Whether they are good things or bad things, whatever God does, he does for the good and the benefit of his own dear people. The third thing we learn is that it is possible to be faithful to the word and the will of God even in the most extreme circumstances and under under the most severe pressure. It couldn't have been easy for Nehemiah to be cupbearer to the king. The king was evil and ruthless. It couldn't have been easy to be in the midst of all that all that, the, the things that were going on within the palace, but he was there. It couldn't have been easy for Daniel to be there. It is possible to be faithful to the word and the will of God, no matter what our circumstances. You all face different circumstances. Many of you face circumstances I don't have to. For many of you, your circumstances are far more difficult than mine. I don't have to go into an ungodly world day by day and work. 
believe it or not, I'm retired. Um, but you do. You perhaps work with uncongenial colleagues. You may work with those who blaspheme. You may work with those who deride the name of Christ day and daily. And it's hard. But you need to remember this. When God places his people in positions of responsibility in heathen surroundings, he expects them to honor him. Some of those people that you work with, they'll never come in here. They'll never come in here to hear the word of God. They won't pick up a Bible and read it. They won't go to a meeting. But they see you. They see you every day. They hear you every day. They witness the way that you live. What do they see when they see you? Do they see you like Nehemiah, a faithful servant of God in these difficult circumstances? Now, most of us will never be in the kind of situation in which Esther, Daniel, and his friends, and Nehemiah found themselves. But every believer lives in a hostile world. And it's important for us to consider why God has placed us in our particular circumstances and how we can serve him and honor him in them. Now this evening, in the will of God, we'll continue to look at Nehemiah the man. Amen.